0: Alright, welcome to the Church of 1122, uh, Scott, our video director, man, they do such a great job. Before we dive into the uh, the Word today, I just want to discuss a new environment that we have with you. Last week, if you were here, you heard Pastor Joby roll out our vision for 2015 where we feel like God was leading us as a church, and one of the primary things he talked about was our heart for you to get connected and to take next steps in your faith journey, and so. Uh, we've created a new environment to that end, a place, a safe place where you can come and ask questions, uh, come and hear more about our history and our heart and our strategy and where we feel like God's taken us and how we got to where we are. Um, and that, that environment is called Discover 1122. These are in the seat backs, I think, in front of you. And, and uh, you can sign up to attend that there. I'll be there. Pastor Jovi will be there. Uh, we have child care and we're going to provide a meal. And where I come from, that's called date night. and so. You should take advantage of date night and come learn more about how you can take next steps in your uh, in your faith journey. Man, I'm really excited to be here with you today uh, doing the week one and part two of our Exodus series as we start walking through the law, specifically the Ten Commandments. Man, um, I'll be honest, as I was wrestling through this when Pastor Joby first came to me and he said, hey, I want you to do part one of the Ten Commandments, I thought, yeah, no big deal. Right, everybody's at least culturally familiar with the Ten Commandments. We know in concept what they are, uh, though we may not know exactly what they say. we, We know that there is a thing called the Ten Commandments. And so I thought that's a common place for us to start. And then I actually sat down and I read them. And when I read them, I began to realize that this was no small task that I was being I was being handed. Uh, As we start to unpack God's law, there's a lot of weight to it and a a real seriousness to the Ten Commandments that culturally I think we just kind of blow by sometimes and we miss. Um, To help us understand kind of what I'm talking about before I really dive in, I want to introduce you to somebody. Uh, A few months ago, my daughters had a a birthday party. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Their birthdays are about three days apart. And we had some of our friends over at our birthday party, and this little guy came. And he was hanging out with us. His name's is Zia. I said, what's up, Zia? Yeah, that's right. Zia's cool. Right there, Zia's about two years old. Zia belongs to Jonathan and Maria, who are on our staff team here. Jonathan is one of our worship leaders, as is Maria. She leads in the sanctuary a lot. and Zia belongs to them. And Zia, in that picture was creeping, right? He'd never been around a pool, really. And so he was kind of creeping up to the water and figuring it all out, and before too long, like any good two-year-old, he found his way in, and in our pool in our neighborhood, there's a, there's a ledge around uh, the inside of the pool that the water's about an inch deep in, maybe an inch and a half, and Zia found his way onto the ledge. And he's cruising around the pool, and he's walking around, and, and Maria's being an awesome mom, just walking right behind him doing the duck walk, you know? Like if you have small kids, you know what the duck walk is because you think like, oh, if I duck walk, they're not going to die, you know? And so you keep them from falling back or falling forward or whatever. Well, sure enough, Z is cruising around the pool and he gets to the deep end on the other side and he, and he slips and he whoosh, falls under. Now, it wasn't half a second, maybe one second before Maria's just all in, picking him up out of the water. He didn't know how to swim. She saved him in a second. He's coughing a little bit, but he's fine. And as I was writing this sermon, God brought that image to my mind. And I hadn't really thought about it since the party. But when I was writing the sermon, God brought that to my mind. And I I, I asked myself this question. What do you think Zia thought when he was under the water? Even for a second. What went through his little two-year-old mind? Some series of fear or confusion? Uh, Some excitement or... Uh, you know pain or whatever whatever it was that went through his mind i guarantee you that if you boil it all down it comes to the feeling of helplessness he felt completely helpless to save himself because he couldn't and that is what the law does to us and so we're going to talk about the law when i wrote this sermon i wrote it in two parts one i'm going to give a little bit of context quickly To the law at 30,000 feet, and then I'm going to actually dive into the text in Exodus 20, which is the first part of the Ten Commandments. And right before I get started, it's important to note that the law makes us feel completely helpless because that's what it's supposed to do, just like we're drowning in the deep end. So don't shoot the messenger. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Let's start in your notes. If you have your notes... On the very top, it's, uh, it says that this, it is a good way, a very helpful way to think about the law is to think about it as a map and a mirror. When it comes to the Ten Commandments, uh, there are four commandments. The first four commandments are Godward commandments or vertical commandments dealing in the relationship between God and His Creator. The next, the next six commandments are horizontal commandments or manward commandments commandments dealing in our relationships to each other if you don't get this right you're never going to get this right and that's been the story uh, of God's people forever that it starts with a relationship with God and when that is right right-sized, then our horizontal relationships will follow in order there's nine of the ten commandments are repeated in the new testament save one which is the sabbath command and that commandment uh, was not mentioned in the new, is, is mentioned in a question, but not restated in the in the New Testament. And Pastor Joby will be talking about that uh, talking about that law next week. Uh, the law is a map in a mirror. Pastor Joby said that last week, and and I'm going to unpack that a little bit. It is a map showing us how to be perfect. So in your notes, you're going to want to write that down. That the law is a map showing us how to be perfect. If you are a list person, if you are OCD at all, if you like to do lists, right? If you like to give your husband to-do lists, you know, however you do it, then you, you know that if you like lists, that the Ten Commandments is, that's just what it is. It's a big old list of how to be perfect. If you want to know how to be perfect, go through the Ten Commandments, check them off one after another, and you have done it. It is a map. It shows us exactly how to be perfect, which is exactly what God expects of us. So to dig a little deeper beyond the aesthetic of perfection, it shows us what God demands from us and how we do it, right? But at the same time, it is a mirror. It is a mirror reflecting to us our imperfect condition. So we can look to the law for directions We can look to the law with the best of intentions. We can go to them seeking to honor it with the best of behaviors, only to find that we can't, and if we could, we wouldn't. The law shows us who to be and then tells us we cannot be it. The law creates a state. It creates a place in its demand that it it then does nothing to empower us to fulfill. It tells us what to do, but gives us no ability to obey the instructions. There's three things to remember when studying God's law. And this will be in your notes, and then we'll move on to the text. The first one is that the law is good. The law is good. I highly encourage you to write in the margins Romans chapter 7. Romans is in the New Testament. and was written by the Apostle Paul. I dare say not many men have lived that are more familiar with the law than the Apostle Paul. He knew the law, and he writes this exposition in Romans seven about the nature of the law in the human heart. If you want to continue to unpack and decode the law, I highly encourage you to go home and read Romans seven. It makes emphatically clear that the law is good. When King David spoke of the law of God, he spoke of it as it was as, as if it was the most beautiful of jewels, as if he had found the greatest of treasures. He would speak of it and say that it restores my soul. The beauty wrapped up in God's law changes the way that I see is the way that King David would speak of it. And so in and of itself, the law is good. It delivers. The problem is that the law is too good. The law is too perfect. It's the most elaborate, expensive, perfectly executed MRI machine ever developed is perfect and that's a problem because the second thing to remember when studying god's law is that it's inflexible the law is inflexible it doesn't move we struggle with this in our culture because we like to equate the law with morality we begin to think of the ten commandments in terms of moral definition and that's a problem because morality falls very very short of what God demands in the law. But even if it were an issue of morality, which it's not, but even if it were, it would not work out. Because in our culture, we like to think of morality like a trampoline. We love for it to have a solid frame. Because without the frame, there's no stability. Everything's chaos. But we love that there's, there's something protecting us from the chaos in a solid frame. But the mat in the middle, we need it to move up and down based on how we feel. Morality is conditional in our culture based on how it makes us feel. Everything is subject to our sensitive, delicate nature and how we perceive information. If it hurts my feelings, then I don't like it. If it creates negative emotion, then it must not be right. Right? And we leave morality subject to our feelings. And here's how you know. Here's how you know. Think about it in regards to parenting. How flexible is your moral compass for yourself compared to your children? Right? I'm really, really strict when it comes to what my kids say, what my kids watch, what my kids eat. My morality is far less flexible with my children than it is with me. i got tons of grace on me. Right, my, my morality with my kids, not so, not so flexible. The law is good. The law is inflexible. It doesn't move an inch. Regardless of how that makes me feel, it doesn't move. And the third thing to remember is that the law is devastating. The law is devastating. It destroys our ability to think of ourselves as good. It destroys our ability to think of ourselves as good. It's not a problem to be solved or a attention to be managed. It's not like we just make a mistake and then we get put into a, a penalty box for like three minutes. It is far, far worse than that. If you have ever wondered, what does God require from me? This is it. What does God demand? The law is what God demands. Not just the law, but the perfect fulfillment of the law. It's devastating. And the reason it's so devastating, and I'm going to dip my toe into some conceptual theology here. But the reason it's so devastating is because of how justice is served through the system of the law. In our country, our justice system is set up on, the ter- on terms of finality. Meaning, if you do the crime, you will do the time. That's how our entire justice sit- system is set up, based on action, and intent what action you commit and under what intent did you break the law then there will be a final judgment rendered it is set up in terms of finality and so when i was a kid they used to try to scare us out of uh, underage drinking or drugs or teenage sex based on in terms of finality like um if you get caught with drugs you're going to do a year in juvie i commit a crime there's a punishment that punishment ends right uh if I if you get her pregnant then she's going to then you have to raise that baby. Right? That was in terms of finality. We define everything based on when the action happens and when the punishment stops. But that's not how God's economy works. God does not deal justice based on action or intent when God serves justice through the law he does it not based on the crime committed but based on whom the crime is being committed against it's very different we don't even put whom in the equation you can murder somebody and then you could do it either out of passion or out of premeditation or action and intent finality with god he says i'm not unsure of your action i am 100% not unsure of your intent And so God deals justice not based on the breaking of the law, but based on whom the crime is being committed against, which in this case is an infinitely holy God. So when we breathe rebellion against the law, we are committing infinite crimes on an infinite scale against an infinitely holy God. It's devastating. It's devastating. When we take the law and make it an issue of morality, we cheapen it. One of the most devastating problems facing the church today is cheap law. And cheap law is when we think that forgiveness comes without repentance. It's when we think, I'm sorry, is the same thing as I am dead. We believe that if we just try harder, if we can just tame our behaviors just enough, then we will be okay. We think that when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that He, what he really means is that all we need to do is love God more than sports. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, we cheapen that. We reduce it down to just do your best. Be perfect doesn't mean do your best. It means... Be perfect. That's the weight of the law. It doesn't move. It's not cheap. It demands more of us than we could ever give. When I was growing up, I'm going to let you in a little backstory here before we dive into the text. When I was growing up, I was what, I'm, I was what is known as a bala not a bowler, a baller, B-A-L-L-A, baller, that means I could play basketball, I could play basketball, I could shoot the lights out, I was really good, I was like the best kid in my town at playing basketball from the time I was a little kid till the time I grew up, there was only like six people in my town, but don't worry about that, I was the best. And I love basketball, I love to play, and and I always wanted to dunk a basketball. It was like my life's ambition. So I went out and I bought these stupid shoes that had like these big rubber toe things on them that made me walk around like this. And our workout room, we had this thing called a super cat, which was like a squat machine that was supposed to help you jump higher, and I would do the super, super cat with my rubber shoes on, you know? I was serious about dunking a basketball. And I tried and I tried, and I could dunk a volleyball like Michael Jordan, but I could never get the real thing to go down on a 10-foot rim. It just was not happening. But I was convinced in my mind that God was going to smile on me one day, and I was just going to put it down. Right? So I'm playing in summer league, and I'm running down the court. Guy throws me the ball, and I'm on a fast break, and I'm ahead of everybody. And here's what I think. I'm going to do it. In a game, thing of legend, I'm dribbling, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to hang on the rim. I might even pull up and sit there and have a drink just to let everybody enjoy it as much as I am. So I take off running, (laughs) grab the ball. Oh, Lord, help me. I grab the ball. I get into the paint, and I take one step, two step, and I jump up. You know what happens? Wham! Right into the front of the rim. I dislocate my right shoulder. No joke, that happened. Dislocated my right shoulder. I fall to the ground, and I am laying there in pain and agony, and I look up at the rim, and I think, it's just not meant to be. It's just not meant to be. It's not in me. It was just not ever in the cards that I was dealt to be able to dunk a basketball. In the same way, it's just not in our cards To obey the law. We're not wired for it. It's not in our genetic design for us to obey the law. No matter how much we think we want to. You have your bulletin. Let's dig into the text. Exodus chapter 20 verse 1. This is the Ten Commandments. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying. I want you to underline the word God. Let's remember what God has done for Israel Israel this far in, in Exodus. First thing, Moses is born. Moses gets uh, shipped down the river, picked up by Pharaoh, raised in Pharaoh's house. Moses kills a man. After he grows up, he kills a man and runs. And then God rescues Moses from Moses through speaking to him through a burning bush. God rescues Israel with Moses through plagues and the Passover Uh, God then rescues Israel from Pharaoh and his armies by opening the Red Sea and letting the nation of Israel cross on dry land. Pastor Joby talked about that last week. God guides Israel after they cross the Red Sea. He guides them with a uh, cloud in the sky during the day and fire at night so that Israel knows where to go. Israel wanders around in discontent and disregard. And in Exodus 19, there's a series of events that happens between Moses and God where the Israelites wanted to go up to the mountain of God where God was and and, have, and meet him. And God says, well, if they want to come up here, they got to get clean. And so Moses goes down the mountain and says, you know, get clean. And then Moses comes back and was like, they're clean now. And then God says, well, go back down and make some sacrifices. And they make some sacrifices and they come back up. Or Moses comes back up and is like, the people are ready. And God ends Exodus 19 with a warning. And the warning is simply this. They do not want to come up here. They do not want to come up here because they can't. They cannot come. They're not clean. And then God breathes the law into existence. The law is a great portrait of God reaching down to man when man cannot reach up to God. Up until this point, God has been the source of all good things, all things beautiful, all things redemptive for Israel, and that's true for us too. Let's not forget who we're talking about when we say and God. We're talking about a sovereign God, a supreme ruler, one that knows all, that is all, has seen it all before it happened, and will be there long after it's over. He is sovereign, and he is also eternal, meaning that he always has been He always is happening and he always will be. Uh, Side note, I was at dinner the other night with my four year old, Anna Catherine, and she says, Daddy, where did God come from? Well, God didn't come from anywhere, Anna Catherine. He's just always been, he's eternal. Yeah, but who's his mommy? Well, God doesn't have a mommy. (gasps) God doesn't have a mommy. And I'm like, no, God doesn't have a mommy. God is the creator of all things. He has just always been. And she was like, Uh oh, well. she, she couldn't get past the mommy thing, right? And so I had to think quick on my feet. And so I was actually sitting down, and I was, I was thinking, and I, and I remember this little kitschy phrase that I learned being a pastor's kid. They, you know, they get in your head. And it stuck with me. God did not start when the start started. God did not start when start started. He started start. He did not begin when the beginning began. He began the beginning. Thank you. I'll be here all night. <laughs> Thanks. You want to write that down? Podcast. Podcast it. Verse two God, the sovereign, eternal, holy God, a, a holy God without blemish, is talking. He says, He says, and God. That's it's important to know who we're talking about. And God. And he, God starts in verse two in a very familiar place. He says, I am. These are two really familiar words to God. I am. The Lord, your God. I want you to underline the word your. Because he is your God. There is no escaping God. It's known as the inevitability of God. God being God is inevitable. In in Philippians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 14. It is very clear that every knee on the earth and every tongue will confess that God is God. They will give glory to him. Everyone. Everywhere. Everywhere. This is God stepping up and answering the ultimate question of our souls that we ask, who do I belong to? Who do we belong to? This is God stepping up and answering the question around every corner. We want to know, who do we belong to? We look to our social groups, we look to our marriages, we look to our kids, we look to our bank accounts. We want to know, where do we belong Who do we belong to? Because inside all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we know that we are ultimately not free and we need a ruler. And there's only one who will do. And this is God saying, I am the Lord, your God. He goes on to say, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, We talked about what God has done for Israel, and that's what God's saying here. Israel, don't forget who I am and what I've done for you. God's reminding them of his goodness and his provision in their lives. And so I have to ask, how about you? Are you, like Israel, quick to forget God's provision in your life? Because I am. You know how long it takes me to forget how good God's been to me? About the amount of time it takes my heart to beat. I mean, even if we here in our country just look on the sheer surface level, not even into the the depth of provision of God's grace and goodness, but just on the surface level, when you go to the sink to drink water, are you worried about getting typhoid and dying? No. No. Billions of people on this planet are. Billions. When the mosquitoes come out in the summer like vampire bats down here in Jacksonville, are you worried about getting malaria? No. But billions of people are. No matter how bad we have it in our country, this is Disneyland, man. And I'm not trying to trivialize your pain or what you're going through, we all go through it. But on the surface level, we have more reason than anybody to be thankful for God's goodness in our life and His provision. Have you ever held a child in your arms that was born with HIV and that was going to die within days, if not hours? About half a billion of them on the planet today, and I've held one. And still I forget. I have more reminders in my life of God's grace than anybody I know. And the truth is, I'm a, I'm a spoiled little brat that looks right past God's provision almost every day. This is God in the law saying, don't forget what I've done for you. In verse 3, he continues, and now we're actually like, we were just in the shallow end, we're about to drop into the deep stuff right now. You shall have no other gods before me, is what it says in verse 3. If God being inevitably God for everybody is is a fact, then why does he even need to address the little g gods? Because God knows that we are hardwired to take things that are temporary and treat them as though they are eternally sufficient. He knows that we are hardwired to take things that are secondary or tertiary at best, and treat them as though they are eternally sufficient. Right out of the gate, God goes to the heart. This is not about behavior. This is about the heart. It's not just about outwardly obeying the law. It's about inwardly wanting to obey the law. So God goes after the heart. The right way to read, you shall have no other gods before me, is... There are no idols allowed ever, never, no matter what, and there are no exceptions. Here's how you know. An idol is defined as anything more important, more important to you than God for any amount of time. An idol is defined as anything more important to you than God for any amount of time. Here's a diagnostic question by which I've been able to identify idols in my life, which there are many. If it's taken away from me, does it create physical, emotional, or spiritual anxiety that is seemingly irreparable? If it's taken away, does it create physical, emotional, or spiritual anxiety that is seemingly irreparable? And I want to pause here to get a real clear picture of what we're talking about where is the only place that exists that God's grace, God's goodness and God's provision is not present? Where is the only place that physical and spiritual and emotional anxiety exist immensely forever? Hell. That's what hell is. It's the removal of God's goodness. The removal of God's grace the removal of God's provision. And we're left to physical and spiritual and emotional anxiety forever. One right way to look at hell is that it's God giving idolaters exactly what they wanted. If you spend a lifetime trusting in something other than God unrepentantly, then God will eventually give you exactly what you want, which is an eternity without Him. If you spend your life wanting things other than God, more than God, long enough, God will eventually give it to you. I have not said that hell is absent of God. It's just absent of all the things that we like to talk about God. Like God's grace and God's patience and God's kindness and heat. He is full of grace and he is full of patience and he is full of kindness. And that kindness and that grace and that patience leads us somewhere and it's called repentance. We love to talk about those things and we should because our hope is in them. Our hope is completely wrapped up in God's grace and his provision and kindness. Completely. And it delivers. It never fails. But there is another side of God. There's a side of God that annihilates his enemies. There's a side of God that is so severe and so unfathomably devastating that our feeble language can barely hold it up. And it's called God's wrath. And his wrath is a partner to his love. They work together. They're partners. You cannot know the reality of God's love without accepting the reality of his wrath. So when I was writing this sermon, right about now is the time that I wanted to really put in like a funny joke. Like, ha oh, ha, God's wrath, ha ha ha, let's have fun. You know, but it doesn't work. And so, it's just not, there's no room to breathe. I wanted to put something here to lift the tension, but it's just, it's just not there. So let's go, verse 4. You should not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness, or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. God created everything and in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 it says he looked at all that he created and he saw that it was very good. This word shalom, this very good, is the implication is universal flourishing. It is the idea that when God created all things good, he created them for us to enjoy them in abundance. Not for a second at a time, but for us to have an abundant existence where we abundantly enjoy God's provision. He created everything as good. But he knows that we take good temporary things and worship them as though they're an eternally sufficient god. And he says, don't do that. He says, don't make for yourself, don't make yourself to car- a carved image. For us, we typically tackle these things like money, power, sex, success, houses, cars. We would go after those things in our normal a, a, Uh, Attempts to show a picture of what is a carved image, but there are deeper things. What about our kids? What about our relationships? No idols applies to everything. No exceptions. No idols applies to everything. For Israel, it was a cow. They built a cow, like a a statue, and they would burn and make sacrifices, and they would bow down before it. Now, what's what's wrong with a cow? Cow never hurt anybody. Right, A cow was given to them by God as a good thing. It provided food for them. It provided sustenance. It gave them hope that they, their people was going to last. It was, a, it was a pillar in their society. And though it was created as good, it was never intended to be God. So for the Israelites, it was a cow. That was their image. But for us, it's something different. Something a little more personal. And it looks a lot like this. This is our carved image. If you can't go to the bathroom without your phone, you have a problem, man. (laughs) Right? You roll up at a stoplight and you're like, oh, did anybody text me? Uh Oh, Did anybody text me? I got crack at it. You know, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. But when it has control, it's become God. How do I know? What if I took it away? What if I took it away from you, and you didn't know when you were going to get it back, or if, and you couldn't go get another one? Physical, spiritual, emotional anxiety that is seemingly irreparable, it's called idolatry. This thing represents so many things to me. My time, my money, my family, my job, you. Really blow your head up when you think, my Bible. there's a Bible in here. But the truth is, because I'm an idolater, it has way more control than I ever want to say out loud. So now that God has peeled back our heart He's going to start unpacking our habits in verse 5. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Bowing or serving is a behavior of the heart, which is known as a habit. Do you know that your heart, if it cares about something, eventually it will chase that thing, and that's how you form habits. Your heart cares first, eventually your behaviors will follow. We can justify a lot of things with our mouths, but we cannot escape our behaviors. I can say all I want to that I love my wife, but it does not make it true to her or in me. I can speak it as much as I want to, but it doesn't make it true to her or in me. I wish I could just say stuff and it would be true. I wish I could go, baby, I love you, and I love the kids, and then just go play golf all day, every day. That's what my wicked heart wishes. But that's just not how it works. It's just not how it works. What gets our time, our energy, our resources? That's what we serve. That's what we love. What about you? If you were your enemy, what would you put in front of you for you to worship as an idol? If you wanted to destroy you, what would you put in front of you to distract you from the all good, all sufficient God. See, if you can name it, it's already there. It's already there. But as I worked through this, I began to learn in a really personal way that it's the stuff that I didn't want to say out loud that I should be really scared of. It's the stuff that I didn't want to say because as soon as I speak it out, I know i got to do something about it. If I can just let it run around in my little liar, rebel heart, I can justify stuff all day. What about you? Verse 5 continued. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's important to note here that God is jealous. He is not envious. Those are two different things. God is not in heaven sitting there thinking, I just wish Ryan would put his phone down. You know, what is it? He ever called. That's not, that's not what God's doing. God's not envious. God is, God is jealous. Jealous of is envy. Jealous for is love. God is not jealous of our little petty gods, but he is absolutely jealous for his children. He is jealously in love with his children, and he hates to see his children run around and waste their time on these little bitty temporary good secondary gods that can never fill them. See, God is jealous because he knows what's best, and he knows that he is what's best. And he hates to see us waste our time on things that are less than the best that he has for You see, the law's primary purpose is to make clear the reality and the need that we have for a Messiah, for a great rescuer. We are supposed to stare into the law and feel completely helpless. And it creates an immense need inside of us. It should break our hearts how helpless we are when we stare into the beauty of God's law. We're lost. And we cannot save ourselves. That's what the law tells us. As a pastor, one of the things that really I wrestle with in my own life is being a person who lives captivated with God's grace. But what I've learned through the years is that I am never more utterly captivated by God's grace than when I have been devastated through need. The law creates need. It devastates. Creating a need so that we can be utterly captivated by the meeting of that need by God. Verse 5 continues. You should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father's on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. It's, It's important to say this, that God does not directly punish children for the sins of their fathers or their grandfathers. God does not directly enact punishment against children for the sins of their fathers. But who here today would be bold enough to say that they don't feel the sins of their fathers? Sin travels through generations. It's called collateral damage. Generational sin. Dads, that's why we have to be careful. Because the things that we are doing, the things that we aren't doing, there's collateral damage. I really learned this this week in a really personal way. See, my dad was a pastor. Incredibly godly man, pastored a really large church. Saw hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people come to know Christ. He fought the good fight. He waged the war for souls. He was an incredible man of God, but my dad battled anxiety. My whole life I watched him do it. He never took medicine He just would struggle and struggle and struggle. He could have 99 people tell him how good he was doing and all the things that were going well and he could have one criticism and it would send his world into a tailspin. I was preaching this sermon on Thursday night and I made some offhand comment that I I didn't repeat today and I wouldn't repeat again and I didn't, even, I didn't even really catch it at the time, but I watched it back the next morning and I thought, hmm, that's probably not the best thing to say. So some regret started to build in my heart. And within half an hour of me watching it back, I get a text message from somebody that watched and was like, hey man, great word. And I have 99 other text messages from people saying, good job, good job, good job, good job. And in the bottom of the text it said, Hey, you probably don't need to say that again. And then I'd get an email with a voicemail attached to it from a lady who was highly offended based on what I said. Regrettably, but that's not the point. And immediately it sent me into a tailspin. My anxiety levels rose higher than they've ever been in my life. I haven't slept maybe four hours since Thursday, I haven't eaten. I've been a mess. I've been a mess because I'm an idolater. And I care way too much about what people think. I care way too much about what I think about me. I'm a narcissist and an idolater. I watched my dad live that way my entire life. And I woke up Friday morning, and I was him. Sin travels, but so does blessing. You know that I heard my dad pray for me every day when I lived under his roof? Out loud, he would put his hands on me, he would pray for me, he would hug me, he would care for me. My dad was awesome. You know, when my first daughter came out of the womb, I picked her up. My wife's sleeping. And I hold my baby and I just start praying out loud. I never even thought about it. It's just the way that it's always been. So, just like my father's sin has traveled through generations, so has the blessing of his prayers. This, Dad's, is why the 731 prayer challenge that we gave you last week matters because the things you're doing now they have an effect on your kids and they will have an effect on your grandkids my daughters hear me pray out loud for them every day because I heard it from my dad praise God for him I can't imagine having a dad I do know what it's like to have a dad who loved God more than me to find everything about. Verse 6. Showing steadfast love to thousands, But I will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, there's some hope in there for like a second. Like, I'm going to show steadfast love to thousands of those, and then you read the who keep my commandments, and that's nobody. No one. The Bible has said Dozens of times that there are none righteous, no, not one. Nobody has kept the law. Nobody meets the demand. Nobody has looked into the law and applied it perfectly. They didn't outwardly obey it. They didn't inwardly want to. Nobody, save one person. One man kept it perfectly. He not only kept it outwardly, he wanted to keep it inwardly. He had the holiest of actions and the holiest of intentions. The perfection that the law demands is realized in Jesus Christ. Everything that God demands of us, Jesus fulfilled. Everything. Jesus is the perfection demanded. He is the law fulfilled, realized. God accepts us only through faith in Jesus. God accepts us because he accepts Jesus. That is why it was imperative that Jesus live a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. The infinite loss we face as, crime, as criminals against a holy, infinite law was redeemed and turned into unending glory at the cross through Jesus Christ. Infinite loss to infinite gain at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everything that God demands, Jesus was. All the justice that God demands against lawbreakers, Jesus wore on his back on the cross, so that our crimes could be forgiven, and that through faith we could have a relationship. With God, that is not prosperity talking. That is a promise kept by God. Verse 7, we're going to close with this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is a super loaded command that I may come back and preach another day, which is not true Next time I come back, we're going to talk about, like, for God so loved the world. We're going to talk about nice stuff with flowers. But for today, let's just unpack this, this command this way. One, we should watch our mouth. You're not going to go to hell if you've ever said GD or if you've ever swore to God. But I definitely would not jump in a pit and slap a lion. So I'd be careful. Everybody laughs because it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> the bigger issue is not your habit of cursing or swearing to God. It's what's in your heart. Because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So what's coming out of your mouth? Right? Is it praise to God? Is it a heart for God? God? Does your mouth express and care for the things that God cares for? Do your words reflect a beautiful and a perfect God that's holy and wonderful and good and has given more than we ever deserve? Or does it speak complaints and entitlement and pain and hurt? We're an incredibly entitled people, and the reason we're entitled is because we don't really believe that God will provide in His time. So we think we deserve it all now. So the question is, what is in your heart? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be rescued. When Jesus was on the cross and He stretches out His arms and He he cries out, it is finished. What he's talking about is the demand of the law. That all the law demands of you is finished. God didn't send Jesus to give you a second chance at behaving better. He didn't send Jesus to to give us a second chance. He sent Jesus because there are no second chances. We don't get a do-over. With Jesus, it is is finished there's two types of people here today some of you have never confessed with your mouth that you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you need to do that today because if you don't confess that Jesus is Lord then you are under the weight of the law but when you confess and through faith trust that he is the the substitute that he is all that he says he is that he is the, the finality of the demand of the law when you believe that with your heart, and you cl- you proclaim him as Lord, then you are set free from the weight of the law. That's Group One, and Group Two are people who have done that before, but have some serious idols that have been battling for some serious affection and attention, and you've been giving it to them. Today, you need to repent. I've been repenting all weekend. There's freedom when we trust in God's grace to forgive us and to redeem us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We love you. We trust you. Pray that as we worship you, that you would would restore us, that your grace would make clear to us that we don't have to be a slave to idols, that we don't have to be tangled in the entrapments or the lies that we can be free. We pray that we would trust you today. And in the areas of our hearts where we don't, I pray that we would repent. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. As always, the altars open as we worship together. We would invite you to come and do business with God. As God moves your heart. Please come.